welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, let's open with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Prayer. God, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not mind be done. Okay, I'm Stephen. I'm a sexaholic. And this is Sobriety 101. I'm not sure which installment we're on, but we've been doing this for several months. Um, We've uh, looked at the white book, um, starting on page. Uh, 63 where it says getting started and we've read through up to step 2 on page 92 and we're particularly looking at places in the book where the people who are working the program have taken actions because action is the essence of any program a program is a sequence of actions And um, in particular, we look at page 77 just about every time uh, to remind us what the white book says about how it works. Um, It refers to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 and 12, um, which are the basic texts of the original 12-step program, it says. I'm reading from page 77. Then it goes on to say that the section here uh, on the steps in in the middle of the white book is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Since he says this right after mentioning the AA literature, I take that to mean that this is not intended as a replacement for the big book or the 12 and 12. Um, So... um, I, I, uh, we have, we have, uh, all AA literature is approved for use in our fellowship. Um, and, um, this allows us to study the way that a 12 step program is applied to alcoholism so that we can learn how to apply it to sexaholism. And this is, in fact, from the history of our fellowship. Our founder, Roy, um, uh, was, in the 70s, early 70s, in um, uh, California, and he had sexualism. He did not have alcoholism, but he realized that he needed the solution that AA had for his lust addiction. And he found an AA sponsor, and he worked the AA program on his lust addiction, and that's how our uh, fellowship got founded, and that's why we use AA literature. And um, so anyway, um, we are going to talk about the AA literature, but um, uh, and in fact, 
We have mentioned maybe doing that this time as we start in step three, but um, we were just talking to Lee a moment ago, and I think what we want to do is before we go into step three and start looking at the action steps, um, we want to um, look at the chapter called Overcoming Lust and Temptation, which starts on page 157. And the reason for this is, um, as it says on Page 77, everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. So um, it's possible to go on working the steps uh, or working some version of the steps while, while continuing to act out. But um, uh, the, the, you know, the book makes it clear that for uh, the sexaholic, that's not really a program of recovery, um, at least not from sexaholism. So um, on page 157, um, you have a volunteer to read there. All right. Okay. I'm Andrew Sexaholic. Hey, Andrew. Andrew. Overcoming lust and temptation. When we withdraw from our habits and are able to stay sexually sober for some length of time, we discover that even though we may not be acting out of our, our compulsion, the obsession is still with us, though it may seem to disappear for a time. Lust, as we have seen, assumes many disguises, which we begin to recognize in sobriety as time goes on. For one person, lust may be lusting after someone. For another, it may be the obsession to be lusted after. For yet another, lust may appear as a desperate sexual or emotional need for someone. In any case, it is the inner disposition of the heart that is the real problem. And the work of recovery continues with altered attitudes and gaining progressive victory over lust. Lust only yields to the slow, patient working of the program in the context of others who are doing the same. This is one reason we need the fellowship of sobriety on a continuing basis. The rewards of unending giving us... Can't talk giving us the true freedom we always wanted. In the following piece, a member tells how he overcame his obsession with lust. For many, these suggestions have proven to be useful in maintaining sobriety and overcoming lust and temptation. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, just a couple of things that I'm noting here in that first paragraph. It talks about the way the obsession, the lust obsession, is not uh, the same as acting out on our compulsion, that we can have that obsession uh, recur even when we're not acting out. Um, and, and it mentions many disguises. I, I find that, um, you know, there's many forms of alcohol but they're readily apparent. You know that that's a bottle of tequila and that's a bottle of, of vodka and so forth. Um, if you had alcohol that was able to disguise itself as a bottle of water, you know, that is what lust is like in these many disguises. So um, obviously there's some forms of lust that we recognize very well, um, but in recovery, there are forms of lust that are more subtle that perhaps maybe we haven't inspired or whatever that much in our addiction that we'll encounter in our recovery and realize, 
Well, you know, that I might not have even noticed that when I was acting out in my disease, but now I see lust there and I, I need to be careful. And this is something we really have to stay on our guard about. Um, uh, but, but uh, you know, confusing as that sounds, uh, you know, uh, the, the thing that helps is what it says there, the, the inner disposition of the heart is the real problem. And, and it's not so much an image or a thought that is lust, but my attitude towards that image or thought. And um, so, so that's uh, where the work of recovery can, can really take place. And so that, that's what we need to focus on. Lust only yields to the slow, patient working of the program in the context of others who are doing the same. So if I want to recover from lust, I need to work the program, which is the steps, in the context of others who are doing the same, which is the fellowship. I need the program and the fellowship. Those aren't the same thing. Many people use them as a synonymous thing. How long have you been in the program? Well, the program is the 12 steps. So, um, and, and the book and uh, our literature makes that very clear. Finally, um, uh, in this, this section calling up, which, uh, coming up, which many people call the 18-wheeler, there's 18 points. That's just uh, a little, a little uh, nickname it's gotten, the 18-wheeler. And, and it says, uh, many of these suggestions have proven to be useful in maintaining sobriety and overcoming lust and temptation. So these are only recommended if you want to maintain sobriety and overcome lust and temptation. If you want to do something else, then, you know. Best of luck. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's turn the page and start. Lee, do you want to? Yep. Okay. Hey, Lee. Hey, Lee. Over, how I overcame my obsession with lust. How did I do it? I didn't. A woman in AA told me after she spoke in a meeting, quoting Chapter 5 in Alcoholics Anonymous, that God could and would if he were soft. And that's how I did it, but letting God do it, because I couldn't. But God could and would and did. But I had to go to meetings to learn things like that. Meetings, 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 meetings. That's what they told me. Just keep bringing the body. Work the steps, work the steps, work the steps, work the steps, work the steps. Going to meetings and working the steps, that's how I did it. That's how I learned to let the grace of God enter to expel the obsession. Here's what worked for me. One, stop practicing the compulsion. I stopped acting out sexually in any and all forms, including sex with self and non-marital relationships. There could be no relief from the obsession of lust while still practicing the acts of lust. Two, stop feeding the obsession. This meant eliminating from what was under my control all printed and visual materials and other symbols of my tyranny. I had to stop feeding my lust by looking around in my use of television, movies, and music and by using and listening to the language of lust. I also had to stop living only and always inside my own head. That's one of the great fringe benefits of going to a lot of meetings. Most of us sexaholics really live on the inside of our heads. We're seldom in the real world. Three, participate in the fellowship of the program. I didn't know of anyone who could stay sober and free of the obsession of lust without such fellowship. I couldn't. Fellowship is where the action is, where the magic is, where connection is, where the feeling a part of is. At first, all I could do was attend meetings. 
Then I followed the suggestion of getting involved in the mechanics of meetings, setting up, cleaning up, holding jobs such as literature chairman, treasurer, secretary. Getting involved made me feel I could be part of instead of apart from my old nemesis. Later, I would be able to go out for coffee, start meetings with others one-on-one, and begin the painful but necessary process of growing up by coming out. Okay, let's let's uh, take a look at this here. Again, <clears throat> a little uh, paragraph to introduce makes it clear, you know, don't act out, go to meetings, and work the steps. So that's a good little uh, simple mantra uh, for people who are just coming in, you know, uh, don't act out, meetings, and steps. Um, again, it begins with number one, to stop practicing the compulsion. Back to page 77 where it says everything begins with sobriety. Um, and uh, you know, we've got to stop acting. Uh, nothing feeds an obsession more than acting on that obsession. That's true for fear, too. If you're afraid of something and you always avoid it, you're never going to overcome your fear. Um, and, and that might be appropriate in some cases, such as poisonous snakes. It's probably a, a good thing always to avoid poisonous Healthy snakes. Fear. Yeah. But um, uh, there are certain other fears that uh, may be appropriate at some times, but, uh, you know, really, like, like, for instance, having a difficult conversation with a loved one. If I always avoid that, that can cause major, major dysfunction in my life. So, so um, uh, but again, this is, we're talking about the lust compulsion here. And we gotta stop, we gotta uh, stop the compulsion. Now, the obsession is, is what happens, you know, in my brain, um, when, you know, as a, as a, as a symptom of my sexaholism. Um, and, you know, the alcoholics have it easier here, I think. This is just my opinion. This isn't in the literature, okay? So, um, uh, but, but, uh, I'm an alcoholic and a sexaholic, and in my experience, um, it's very easy to separate uh, the obsession from the compulsion. Uh, the compulsion occurs when I put alcohol in my body. I've got to have more. The obsession occurs when there's no alcohol in my body. And, um, you know, but I keep thinking about alcohol. Um, the Alcohol itself is a substance. I put it in me, it changes me. Okay, and I have an abnormal reaction to that substance. A normal person wants some alcohol, they take some alcohol, they feel relieved. Oh, yeah, that's nice. I had, you know, wanted a drink, now I've had a drink, now I feel relieved. An alcoholic doesn't feel that relief. Alcoholic gets thirstier when he drinks. So he has an abnormal reaction. Now, the alcoholic, when he's dry, there's no alcohol affecting his body. You know, it can be a week, a month, it can be years since his last drink. There's no alcohol anywhere in his body, and yet he's got this obsession. So he's got an ism, and so it's real clear the separation between the compulsion and the obsession. Um, for us, it's harder because it's not so clear when lust enters our body uh, <laughs> or not. And, and does it enter, or is it just always there waiting for us to drink. There's an old-timer in our fellowship named Jess who said that the alcoholic has to get up in the morning and, and, and not, you know, go to the liquor store or to the bar. I have to get up every morning 
and spit out my first, you know, temptation to lust. You know, it's, it's like I wake up. It's like if I woke up with alcohol in my mouth, <laughs> and I had to decide whether to swallow it or not. And and um, so that's that's uh, anyway. But um, that is not to. Uh, to, 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 for us to wallow in self-pity about being sexaholics instead of alcoholics. That's just for us to understand that, you know, when we when we read the AA literature and we, we translate it, you know, and say lust and alcohol, there are differences between the disease. Fortunately, the same solution applies. We just have to apply it at a depth for, for our, our, our uh, sexaholism. And this, this number two point of stop feeding the obsession is very, very, um, um, you know, important uh, part of our fellowship. A lot of uh, fellowships uh, don't stress the lust as much as they stress the behavior. And, and so for, for, for those of us in SA, we, we really need to stop it before, you know, it gets to the, the point of looking around, uh, uh, cruising, and, and even using and listening to the language of lust. You all have any experience with language of lust? A little bit. A little bit. Sure. Just the slang words we use. Yes. You know, instead of, you know, proper vernacular of vagina or penis. Yes. You know, just all the dirty words that we use to embellish things. And, you know, talking about a woman, like, for me, a woman uh, that I'm lustful of going across the street, bringing up and being like this gorgeous woman or this woman with huge boobs instead of saying, this woman got was attractive to me and I needed to stay away, you know, uh, kind of bringing up lustful things about the person. Yes. It can be as subtle as that, saying mm-hmm. someone is gorgeous. You know, that's the, that, that can be the language of lust for us. Um, makes it sound makes it sound like I'm just you know admiring her beauty, mm-hmm. but for me that's dangerous because I can hide I can I can protect my lust with something as simple as that. So looking at the language is very very um, is very very important. Uh, Andrew, sexologist, uh, that's really important to me. The mental in your head kind of a thing and what I mentioned before about the different forms it takes on um, as you sober up because before you know I thought I had a problem staring at women's breasts and things like that and um, the longer I'm sober and dry the more I see my lust to be lusted after and that the first thing I really look for and can tell that I'm being lustful is the eyes. Uh, I want to see that she is looking at me more than what she looks like, more than me drinking off of her, but me drinking off of her wanting me or even just noticing me. Um, interesting seeing how that changes um, and something simpler and less just right in front of your face. Uh, Hits that lust on your head. Yeah. Imagine being an alcoholic and and 
uh, having a problem if somebody else wants a drink. You know, it's like <laughs> that makes <laughs> yeah. me drunk. So. Yes. Okay. And then the next point about participating in the fellowship of the program. You know, that is definitely uh, where the ma- ma- magic is. You know, part part of the thing that some days some days I really want to do this. You know, I really want to do the, uh, the the things in the steps. Other days, for whatever reason, I just I just don't have the energy or the drive or the enthusiasm, or maybe I even have a, some resistance or some rebellion. If I'm in the habit of showing up to these meetings, that can save my life. Because on days when I don't have the the, the drive inside myself to take these simple actions, being around you. You know, really, help. I mean, it can cause opportunities for, for taking the actions I need to take. It can cause them to fall into my lap. You know, to, if I on a day when I'm really motivated, I can go out and look for those opportunities that I need. Just like Bill went, uh, you know, down the hall and started making phone calls so he could find a drunk to work with in Akron. I mean, he, he, he knew he needed that to save his life. He was highly motivated to go and do it. Um, I have days when I'm like that, when I'm highly motivated to go and look for an opportunity to work with, with, with someone. Other days, not so much. And so that's why I need you guys. I need to show up for things like this. You know, doing this every month is really important for me to help me stay sober. Um, because, you know, you know, I mean, the same thing that happened, it was, you know, when, when I first started coming around, you know, I didn't have sobriety. I didn't know that I could do this. Um, I hadn't worked the steps, you know. Uh, and so I had that motivation. And now if I were to, I think it's very easy. I'm insane. And I know it would be insane to to think this or to, to have this happen. But I have seen friends of mine do this who had a lot of time to get to the point where they just feel comfortable and they feel like, well, you know, I really don't need to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So for me, what I need is is to have a, 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 a an enthusiasm to do this. And I, the only way I can keep it is by sticking around you guys. You know, because you have an enthusiasm. Uh, some of you have an enthusiasm to survive. Because you're dying from your disease, and others have an enthusiasm to give back. Uh, because you're working the program, you've gotten the awakening, and I need to be around you guys. You know, so it says, you know, just like it said on the earliest, pa- the earlier page, uh, patient, the slow patient working of the program in the context of others who are doing the same. There's an energy that we all, that comes. God, God's energy comes to us when we're when we're getting together to do this, and I've got to be here. You know, uh, I, I can bring I can bring some energy, but all of us um, uh, receive the energy if we show up and we, we take the simple action. So, you know, anyway, pretty good thing to be a part of. You got anything, Lee? <clears throat> no, I mean, um, I like the you know the part you know stop seeing the loss, the use of television, movies, and music. Um, you know, um, you know, I can be in a bookstore and seeing a book that looks interesting, and then it's there's something like um, you know something not quite lustful, but definitely something that 
would take a sexaholic to that down that road. And I had to stop and put that book down and walk away now. Because it's like, a normal person could read that. I can't. Because I'll sit there and look for all the lost parts in that book and focus it on it and obsess over it. And, you know, I've, I've had to learn to do that. I mean, it's not... It's not just looking at porn or they stop looking at porn. It's it's lust in anything and everything. Clothing, TV, food. <laughs> um, and it's continuous learning every day. Amen to that. Shall we continue? Yes. Four, admit powerlessness. At the very beginning, all I could do when the compulsion struck was cry out, I'm powerless, please help me. Sometimes a hundred times a day. Powerlessness was the most beautiful word in the world to me then as I was coming to experience the first step at death. It still is. Later I would discover that I was really powerless over me. The more I had fought lust, fought lust before, the more it fought back. All my willpower seemed to empower lust rather than hold it in check. Reading step one in the 12 and 12 helped me see that my powerlessness was the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful life may be built. Page 21. I finally stopped trying to stop. Only by admitting lust's power over me to others in the fellowship could I receive power over my lust. Five, surrender. Without surrender... Mere admission of powerlessness fails to connect us with our higher power. At first, for me, it was surrender to the group where I began attending meetings. This was simply going to the meetings and being as honest, open-minded, and as willing as I could. This was how I came to experience the second step and have hope that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. This was what prepared the way for the third step surrender later on, when it would be to God as I understood him. As far as my lust was concerned, I knew exactly what surrender meant and what I had to do. Every time I was tempted from within or without, I would say, I surrendered the right to lust after this person. Please take it away. And like it says, God could and would and did. I may have had some discomfort or fear and may have had to repeat the surrender over and over again, but it worked. It felt scary at first, but I was staying sober, and it was slowly getting easier, one temptation at a time. Okay. Um, So what's going on here? What's he talking about? Number four, number five. You're basically giving up control. That's kind of the foundation. Of it. It's you know, I'm powerless, and I gotta give this stuff away. Um, for me, that comes out a lot, and I'm not perfect. Uh, I have a lot of perfectionism. And, uh, one thing that took me a bit to figure out is a little part towards the end of a uh, surrender. Um, where he has the prayer and says sometimes over and over again, uh, but it worked. I, I tried that, you know, the first month or two, a few times, um, but I'd pray one time, you know, I'd pray 
God, take my lust for this person away. One, I'm asking him to just take it away. Um, and two, I'm barely doing anything. I'm like, God, take this away from me. Oh, it doesn't work. Um, and actually, I, I haven't been doing a really good job of that recently, uh, of going to that prayer. Uh, I, I've been turning more towards people I have fellowship with than God, um, which I, I really need to work on because he's kind of important to this program actually working. Um, but finally one day, I remember I was on the way to a meeting and I passed a billboard that was just triggered me. It, there wasn't anything particularly triggering, but there was a woman that triggered me. And I had to have prayed that prayer right there like 50 times. And you know what? It wasn't there anymore. Go figure. I was like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> and I think for me, that's where the surrender was. It's not simply in the, hey, God, I surrender this. It's the the seeking. Because I can say it one time without actually seeking God. But seeking over and over and really investing in, I don't want this. Um, that really made the difference. So that was, that was a really big moment for me and realizing a little bit of how this works. And it's amazing how resistant we are to learning these sorts of things because, I mean, if, if, if I was complaining about my, my, my physical, you know, condition and, 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 you know, I said, I even did a push-up once, you know, you'd be like... You know, that, that's laughable. Mm-hmm. I would, I would, who would, who would think that? Who would ever think? Oh, I, well, I did a push up. You know, why am I, not, why am I not strong? Um, and yet, with something like this, um, <clears throat> we have to have these moments of insight mm-hmm. <laughs> where where it gets through because sexaholism is a learning disorder. There are certain very, very simple things that we need to do to recover from sexaholism. And they're very difficult for us to learn because we have a brain that's very slippery to these types of simple facts and practices. <laughs> and, and that's what one of the biggest things is, <clears throat> you know, forgetting. You know, people just honestly forgot to do certain program actions. And, you know, that lets me off the hook because I didn't do it on purpose. Uh, well, except, you know, I still have all the consequences of dying from my disease. And so it doesn't really let me off the hook after all. Um, and so that's why the, this thing about powerlessness, you know, as Andrew said, I, I've had lessons about powerlessness that, that have occurred to me where, you know, at, at six months or a year or three years, I have this insight it's just like, oh, I mean, that thing about, <clears throat> you know, and I think this is about the first step. This lady I heard in an AA meeting sharing about how when she was six months sober and then she drank again, she had a conversation with her sponsor after and her sponsor asked her, was there any alcohol in your body when you took that first drink? And she had a flash of insight that, you know, she thought the alcohol was the problem. You know, but, but there was no alcohol affecting her at that moment, and yet she made the insane choice 
in light of everything she'd ever experienced with alcohol, she made the insane choice to take that first drink. And that is the same thing with my lust. There is even, you know, I think of lust as being the problem, but I'm sick. Even if you take all the lust out of my body, I'm a sexaholic, and there's something not right with my brain. And so I had that insight, and I'm still having insight into the uh, into the meaning of the first step. It says here, he uses language that suggests this. He says, as I was coming to experience the first step at death. He didn't say, as I experienced it. And then he said, later I would discover. He keeps having, he keeps learning what the first step means. Um, so I, I encourage everyone to to be open-minded, as it says here. You know, whatever I've learned about the first step up until today, I may need to learn something new about it today in order to live for another day sober. So, And that's part of the surrender also. Um, he talks here about this is a second step surrender, and he has a third step surrender later on. Um, so this thing of giving it up, you know, this whole surrender concept is something that I need to practice. It's an action, and, and I have to practice it today, and, and I'm going to have to practice it tomorrow. So um, it's like a push-up. Or a shower. I've got to. I got to take. If I take a shower today, that's not going to keep me clean tomorrow. I definitely. Um, God went went over this today. The the prayer number five was always been my favorite one, and I kind of forgot about it to be honest. Um, but this one's really big for me, uh, especially at this time of the year where it's spring and summer, and skin comes out. And uh, I, I use this quite a bit in the car, seeing people outside. Um, and, and it seems like, at least for me, the skin is getting worse, <laughs> what people are wearing nowadays. But I have to I have to take it a step further. I mean, I have to really personalize this prayer to that person. I can't just say, I surrender the right to the lust of this person. Please take it away. I have to actually start praying for that person, praying that they are going to have a good day today and that they, you know, wherever they're going, you know, that they're successful in their in their day and their job and family. And, I, you know, it turns into a, a lot longer prayer. Um, but for me, that, that helps. And um, I kind of forgot about that, unfortunately. But fortunately, I remember today and um, perfect timing, too. It's a learning disorder. We're very forgetful yeah. of selective things, just like yeah. certain things we're very forgetful about. Other things we, we have pretty good memories. Okay, um, go ahead. I want to bring back up something you mentioned, um, the obsession and craving. That was, um, for a while, I, I saw those as combined of just kind of a repetitive statement, obsession and craving, like they were one thing. And I listened to a speaker uh, audio tape um, from AA, and they separated them, and then and they talked for a few minutes on obsession and then on craving. And it was a light bulb moment. It was like, oh, oh, that okay. Now it makes sense. It makes more sense. I can okay. I can understand my problem a little better and deal with it a little better. 
and see more purpose. And okay, this is just how powerless I really am. It's not just, hey, I really like lust. It's here's the obsession part of this powerlessness. Here's the craving part of this powerlessness. And that different differentiation between the two, and they're both problems that mix and make for a hell of a time. Uh, that really clicked well with me. Um, I still need to remember that occasionally. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and that, those light bulb moments, uh, I, I want to have more of those. I, I, I think one of the things that, uh, when, whenever I have those light bulb moments, like if you had asked me like 10 minutes before, you know, about the whole deal, about the obsession, the compulsion, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, I get that. I get. If you had explained it to me just the way you explained it just now, I'd say, "Yeah, I get that. I get that." No, no, no. I got. It. I got it. And then, you, and then I had the light bulb moment, and I'm like, "Oh!" And now I realize, well, I didn't get it, but I was convinced that I got it, you know. And and so I think more, more than anything, it's me thinking that I know is in the way. <laughs> it's what slows me down. I'd have a lot more of these experiences if I wouldn't realize, or if I wouldn't think. That, that that I that that I know, um, and so now they say uh, a wise a wise uh, person once said that spiritual growth is a process of subtraction, not a process of addition. About losing the old ideas that I have that are incorrect, um, and and progressively coming closer to know the truth as God reveals Himself to me, discloses Himself. Anyway. Um, uh, so I don't know that's a good thing for me to say mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got my experience I've had my insights and my light bulb moments to date and I certainly don't want to throw them away but I, nor do I want them to block me from going forward So I definitely saw in me that need of well I see in me that need of letting go of my beliefs and God you know uh you know, I started, and I was like, okay, second, third step, I'm not going to have to do those. <laughs> I was raised a Christian. And then I heard the process of, well, make a list of what you attributes you need God to have to trust. And I was like, well, that's, no, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. I, no, I can't do that. <laughs> God is God. It doesn't have to do with who I am. He is God. But going into it, uh, the more I got into the program and the fellowship, the more I realized, oh man, I really need to <laughs> set aside what I think and open myself up to the program. And that, every time I, I've done that, I've seen, okay, now I get it. It's the same thing that I thought I knew, but now I really know it. Um, you know, the light bulb moments, but, um, Definitely a pride in that. Well, I'm a Christian. I already know God. I already know how. I know the rules for how who God is. Um, so yeah, that messed with me for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do another one. Number six. Six. Bring the inside out. As I began to see that I would apparently never be cured of the possibility of lusting. 
I had to bring other steps to bear on me. Step four and five opened the door to being able to look at myself critically. This was probably the most important change of attitude in my early recovery. But with lots, I had to keep taking many inventories as suggested in the fifth and tenth steps. Whenever I felt some experience, image, memory, or thought was controlling me, as was often the case, I would bring it into the light, talking it out with another program person. Get the air and sunlight on it. Lust hates the light and flees from it. It loves the dark, secret recesses of my, of my being. And once I let it lodge there, it likes, it's like a fungus and starts flourishing, the athlete's foot of the soul. But as soon as I bring it to the light, exposing it to another recovering sexaholic, the power it has over me is broken. Light kills lust. I did this with specific experiences, not in generalities. Sometimes it meant imposing on a person's time, but it cleaned me out and kept me sober. Every time I talked it out and surrender, the power of that memory or experience was broken. Another new and powerful breakthrough. Seven, trust. As I was able to be, as I was able more and more to live above my lust, learning to trust more and more in God's power to expel the obsession, I soon learned to begin each day with the prayer of putting myself and my lust in God's hands just for that day. This meant I was learning to live without lust and really wanted to be free of it. Now I begin each day with the third step prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous page 63, changing the wording to suit my own case. It usually goes something like this. Please keep me sober from my lust today because I can't. I offer you my will and life today to do and build with as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self today that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties today that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your great power, love, and way of life. God give me what I need today. Thy will, not mine, be done today. Okay. All right. Bring the inside out. You know, this comes right after surrender, and and it talks about surrender in this um, bullet. And I think this is one of the great acts of surrender. It's telling the secret that I'm afraid to tell. Um my my first action of of trust was telling a secret in front of a therapy group in 2001 and and I knew that that secret would result in uh that disclosure would result in me uh being reported to the authorities for criminal sexual behavior and it was a very very terrifying moment um and a lot of the uh I think all of the growth, all the relief and the growth and the recovery that I've experienced kind of goes back to that moment. It could not have happened without it. Um, and, and, you know, I see how, how, um, all kinds of, uh, things have, have flowed from it. Positive things. Um, this thing about the light, you know, I guess it's a metaphor, but I think, in some sense, it's more than a metaphor. Um, it, there, there really is light 
in in the there, the there is sunlight of the spirit, and when I am willfully keeping something like this from you, um, yeah, it, it empowers. Uh, the darkness it empowers my disease. I, I have to keep part of myself in the darkness, and and I begin to live as if I cannot survive unless I keep that in the darkness. And ultimately, I I become uh, my life becomes you know a thing of darkness. Um, that's my experience, and and uh, like athlete's foot of the soul. Um, yeah, you know, it's like it starts flourishing. So um, this uh, talks about uh, sharing with specific experiences, not in generalities. Um, <clears throat> there is a discussion among the old timers in our fellowship. Um, on one one side. Um, uh, there, there is the idea that um, uh, that this is like the fifth step. That I need to, I need to be honest with someone. Uh, I need to not have it pent up. But then I don't need to tell everyone in the world. I don't have to, and and I don't have to come into meetings and be like graphically explicit. On the other hand, there are some members who be, who believe that. Um, being graphic is very important to to recovery, and certainly in my case, I have found that there have been times where that was uh, important and powerful for me to be descriptive, like in detail about the thing that I'm lusting after. You know, the body parts and the actions, and the and the reason I believe that that was important for me is because some of those things were extremely shameful. To me, some of the details. Um, I have, you know, uh, my uh, the history of my sexuality has got a lot of what's called deviance in it, uh, which are like abnormal sexual thoughts and feelings and acts. And um, and I feel, you know, about those things, I feel very much uh, like I, I've gone against, you know, my own humanity. With those things, and so so I've have a lot of shame about them. But it's been very important for me in my recovery to be able to share those with other people and to have them not um, reject me. I remember one time I I, I called up someone uh, that I didn't want to, but I was like about a year and a half sober, and my my sponsor had told me I needed to do this. I needed to call some people up if, if I was being troubled with a sexual thought to call them up and share specifically what it is. And and I won't say the specific thing on tape, but but um, uh, it, it was very shaming to me. And I, I you know I was having this thought, and I didn't want to do this, but I knew <laughs> you know I, I I felt quite you know. I was still, you know, even last a year, year and change sober. I was, I was quite convinced that if I didn't work this program, then I would die from this disease. And so I did. I did it. I made a call. I called a guy. I remember. I remember who I called, and I remember what I told him. And as soon as the words left my mouth describing this sick fantasy that I, I had been having, I was like, kind of wanting to reach out of the words and pull them back. 
But but as as they left my mouth and I knew that he had was was hearing the words, I began just to say, "Oh my God!" You know, I was ex- sexually excited by that. You know, I, I, it just it just kind of broke the spell uh, that this that this image had had over me. Um, to say it out loud and to know that another person was hearing it, it changed the way I looked at it immediately, like instantaneously. And then I'll never forget uh, his response. He said, "Well, that would fix everything, wouldn't it?" You know, you know, as if you know, acting on my on my impulse would make everything right. You know, which is of course a ridiculous idea. And I just laughed. You know, he was making light of it. You know, and then he went on to say that uh, you know he uh, you know didn't have that particular uh, 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 attraction that I had described, but. But that this is like the Baskin Robbins of addictions, you know, 31 flavors, and everybody's got their own flavor. And then he went on to describe this really shameful attraction that he had, that he thought no one else would, you know, would reject him. And it's just like, it's just a symptom of the disease. And so it worked this double whammy on me, on my disease, where immediately upon doing this, first off, I saw how insane the thought was, and it no longer attracted me. As soon as I said it to the other guy, it was just like, oh, my God, that's that's sick. And, and I no longer had this this energy. And it broke also the shame when he when he when he made that wisecrack. And, and then we were laughing about it. You know, the whole idea that that I would be rejected and destroyed if you found out it was gone. And so I would never have experienced that had I not become willing to follow directions that I didn't want to follow. I would have never known that, that it would have that, that effect. And so I think, I think as far as the, the debate about how and when and, and where and, 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 you know, about, about talking about it, that, that I've got to be willing to go to the extreme in, in, in sharing this. If, I, if, I, if I've got something that I will not do, for my recovery, then my disease is going to use that. So I think that's very important. And as far as the specifics of how to do this, I think each person needs to work that out for themselves with their with their um, sponsor and with God as they understand Him. Um, so anyway, um, and that's where the trust, the the, the trust bullet uh, number seven comes in. Um, this is, the learning to trust is is about action. Um, you've heard the story of the guy, the, the tightrope walker, who's pushing a wheelbarrow across the, the the way it goes. Is you know it says okay, there's this guy. You're at a circus, and there's this guy. He's a tightrope walker. He's already done some pretty amazing tricks on the tightrope. Now he's going to push. He's got a wheelbarrow. He's putting it up on the tightrope. He's about to walk across. Do you believe he can do it? Like, well, yes. Okay. Are you willing to get into the wheelbarrow? <laughs> that's the difference between belief and trust. And so that's what this is about. This, this thing called trust here is about action. Taking these actions. Not acting out. Not um, uh, screaming at my wife. Not uh, lying to, to, the, to the prosecutor. You know, not doing things... 
that that are wrong, that are against God's way of doing things. Uh, but but doing what God would have me do as best I can tell, even if that seems like it'll hurt me. Telling that secret that I thought I thought I was sure to die when I told that secret. I thought there was no way anything could be right. But I was just like, this is how I'm going to commit suicide. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell this secret, and and um, you know what? I, I, I lived. So that was an act of trust, even though I didn't feel a bit of trust in my body. In that moment, that was an act of trust, and that's what this bullet is about. Anything, um, you guys, on that? I, I would just say, I mean, uh, bring the inside out, you know, the whole bring it to the light. I, I struggle with that, especially in the beginning. Um, I forget the part we read at each meeting, but you know, we're we're taught not to talk about it. Um, you know, and so for me to sit there and try to talk about my issues, you know, that, that was difficult in the beginning. It, it was. And I, and I came and explained how uh, it works by bringing it out in the light, how it does relinquish the control of the disease to less over you. But I, I know enough now where I'm at now in my sobriety that if I don't tell my, at least my sponsor, if I, if I don't at least tell my sponsor the specifics about a thought I had or an event I had or something I even did or almost did, it will stay there in my head and will most likely happen again the next day. You know, or at least take me down that, a different road or take me further. I mean, I, I now see that now. I don't want to explain it. I, I can't explain how getting stuff out of my head necessarily works, even even little small things, you know. But it works. Yes, it does. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's every day that's so hard for me. And... Uh, I think Lee said it very well, even the small things. And, um, it really does start with the small things that don't seem like a big deal that my disease tells me, eh, don't worry about it. Um, and I'll go about the rest of my day just fine. But, you know, after three weeks of that, that little thing is bigger and bigger things that I think I don't really need to say anything about it. Um, you know, um, so I really, things work better when, you know, I'm not even lustful of this person, but they did, I did notice them a little bit and went on. It's like, you know what, go ahead and even say something about that. Cause that image can stay in my head. And, you know, my head says, that's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, but for me, it will become, and uh, maybe not, that one instance, but it is connected to something three weeks from now, that's going to be a big problem. Um, and just the vulnerability in, in sharing what you're thinking, what you've lusted after, these things, um, even with somebody that you know uh, doesn't have a problem with that issue or does have a problem uh, with that issue 
and can relate specifically to that. Uh, it's so vulnerable and it's so scary, even if you did it yesterday to the same person with exact same instance. It's still scary. Um, and it's that trust that's in there of, I'm going to trust you that this isn't going to hurt me and it will work today since it worked yesterday. Um, that doesn't go away. There's always, for me, there's always been that thought in there of, eh, you don't have to. You don't necessarily. Well, I say it doesn't go away. It hasn't gone away yet for me. Um, that just wanting to keep it secret. I think Lee said it well also with, um, you know, you're raised with, we don't talk about this kind of thing. At least I was. And, and that thought process still stays in my mind of, we don't talk about this. We don't talk about this. There's a room full of guys here specifically talk about this, but you shouldn't talk about yours. <laughs> um, so it's dangerous. i got to remind myself that that's a whole bunch of crap. Thanks. Let's take a break. Okay. Mr. Reed. Sorry. Okay. Use the literature of the program. The 12 and 12 and Alcoholics Anonymous were my first guides in working the steps. Again and again, I found that I needed, I needed in those original documents that launched the 12 step program. Many of us now find that working the principles outlined in our essay literature adds another dimension and is very helpful. Using it in the solitude and privacy of our own quiet times, we, we gain insights about ourselves and our recovery in a way uniquely suited to who and where we are. Notice that he mentions the AA books first, and then he mentions the essay literature. So, again, sorry. Continue. Nine. Go to work on the other defects. I discovered to my utter amazement that lust was not my root problem at all. It was just another symptom of my underlying spiritual illness, diseased attitudes. Lust was just one more manifestation of this huge negative force within me that had to bust out any way it could. As soon as lust started to go, resentment started taking its place. Then fear than a judging spirit. It was like trying to stop a leak in a dam. While you're trying to plug up one hole, it springs a leak somewhere else because there's this huge body of water behind the dam and its pressure is going to, t to make it break out at the weakest spot. This huge body of water, it turns out, is the destructive negative side of me and the degree to which I can connect into the positive power of God, God is the degree to which I disconnect from the negative in all its forms. Thank God today I have a choice. The fringe benefit of having to work on my defects to rid myself of the obsession of lust is finally being able to plug into life. But I can't be free of any obsession while I'm drunk on another. I can't be free of lust while drunk on resentment and so on. 
I went on, I went to step study meetings to learn how others were actually getting victory over their defects. I was told that one of the best ways to nip a resentful thought in the bud is to pray for the person and I resented. Ask, ask for them what you want for yourself, they suggested. It worked. My first employer in sobriety was the object of scores of such prayers daily. They didn't seem to do him much good. Who knows? But they kept me from falling into the snake pit of resentment. Okay. All right. Using the literature of the program. Um, this is one that's easy to forget. Um, I asked the men that I sponsor to read two pages out of the big book every morning. And the reason for that is because it's the instruction I was given by my AA sponsor. Um, We began on Roman numeral 11, which is the uh, preface. And then we go all the way to page 164, which is the end of chapter 11, a vision for you. And and um, the reason that we do that, when we get to 164, we start back on Roman numeral 11. The reason we do that is one, um, reading two pages rather than you know a whole chapter um, slows down my mind and forces me to look very carefully. At what's on this uh, two pages? In fact, to, to make that even more so, that the the first time that we go through it, we look up two words on every page, not as a vocabulary lesson, but as a as, as a lesson in attention, and focusing on what's on the page, and listening to what God wants to tell me through it. Spiritual literature is different than than like information, like in a newspaper. Now, if I ha- if I read a newspaper, then I'm done with the newspaper. It's it's old news. I throw it away. The spiritual literature speaks to me wherever I am on that day, and so I found that reading uh, something more than once, uh, I can see things in it that are very different than what I saw the last time. You know, the, the man that, that gave me that instruction, you know, he has, uh, I think he has 30 years of AA sobriety now. Whenever he goes to an AA meeting, he brings his book to class, what he says. Takes his big book. And when they're reading how it works, he opens, has his book open to page 58, and he's following along. Now, I thought he was doing it just to make sure the guy didn't make a mistake or something. But... I asked him about it, and turns out he doesn't want to make the assumption that he's heard everything he can hear and how it works, even though he's certainly heard it several thousand times. You know, read it, memorized it, who knows? And that's a very important thing for me to bring to my study of the literature is not to assume that I already know what it says just because I've read it so many times. If I read two pages every morning out of the big book, 
I will read from Roman numeral 11 to page 164 in approximately 90 days. And if I start that over, then every 90 days I'll read all the instructions in the big book. Now that keeps me in it. Uh, but I've had the experience like on the seventh time that I read the book, I saw a phrase that quote-unquote wasn't there the last time I read the book. My, my, my old AA sponsor called that fresh ink. The big book fairy came in the middle of the night and added a sentence to his big book. You know, don't be careful, you know, or you'll smudge it because it's still fresh. Um, but that's what spiritual literature is like. And so I think that's an important thing, you know, to, to realize that when we're reading spiritual literature, it's not the way we've read any other thing in our lives, probably. Well, maybe, maybe uh, we've had that experience with another kind of spiritual literature, but I want to assume. Um, and so. Um, now, this is, a, this is one more vehicle for God to speak to me if I open myself up to listen. And, you know, that goes into everything, everything that God uses to speak to me. I, I just want to get Steve out of the way. Steve is the thing that's been blocking me from hearing what God's been trying to tell me my whole life. So, and then, you know, that leads into the, the work on the other defects, um, diseased attitudes. Um, it says lust was not my root problem at all. Uh, just another symptom of my underlying spiritual illness, diseased attitudes. Now, I like the way he uses the word root, because if you look in the AA Big Book, on page 62, it says that the root of my problems is selfishness and self-centeredness. So... Lust is an extreme form of my self-centeredness, but the, all the other forms form this huge negative force. Can I ask a question? Sure. So I've heard people say that lust was their problem, that acting out was a, wasn't their problem, it was a form, but it was lust. Um, and then I, I remember reading this one time where it says lust was not a real problem. And um, so I kind of have a hard time of balancing the two um, because I, I know for me, it, it's like I can have lust just like a breath of air, you know, but then I can have lust because there's something not right with me at that moment. Right. Um, you know, I'm angry at someone, I'm pissed off, I'm lonely, it's, and, and that's where I really get in trouble. Um, but I mean, I've heard people say that lust is their problem, not the other defects. I don't know. I don't know if you have anything to share on that. Well, well, I think I think there there is a sense in which lust is the problem. Like you said, it's not it's not the acting out, it's not the pornography, it's not the way people are dressing. It's my lust. Lust is yeah. the problem. But then again, from the point of view of the spiritual solution, lust is really just a symptom. And the big book has the same kind of distinction. It talks about alcohol being our problem, but then it says alcohol is not the problem, it's just a symptom. The way I, the way I put that all together is, is when I was um, in, in third grade and <clears throat> was learning subtraction, I told this, this rule, you can never subtract the bigger number from a smaller number. 
you always have to put the bigger number first. You can say 5 minus 3, but you can't say 3 minus 5. Can't do that. That's wrong. So for several years, we were going around thinking that was wrong. And then some, some years later, I don't know if it's fifth grade or seventh grade, they teach us about these things called negative numbers. It says, well, what we told you before was wrong, but we needed to tell you that so that you could, you know, learn that thing. And then now you get to this. And now, now you find out that was wrong. That's sort of how I look at it. It's like from the point of view, it's like I need to, when, when, when I'm thinking of all these other things like, oh, oh my ex-wife is the problem or, you know, my, my paycheck, my landlord wants to evict me, that's the problem. Well, no, actually, thus is the problem. You know, um, you know all, all, all the problems in my life are, are basically the reason they're problems is because of, because of um, I use lust as my solution. And so to get me focused on lust, I need that truth. I need that statement just as that truth. But then later on, you know, I'm sober. I've, I've appropriately learned that lust is the problem and not these other things. I work in my program. Now I need this more, you know, this more advanced knowledge, you know, that actually lust is not the problem. So that's the way I look at it. I, you know, that, that is that is an opinion. It's not in the literature, but but from my experience, you know, it, 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 it's helpful. So I I would say the way I interpret it is the core thing is, is that even lust is not really the problem. The problem is me. But but yeah, you know, the, the the statement that lust is the problem can can help me focus on on lust when when that's what I need to focus on. So so I use it that way. Now, as far as the other defects, um, you know, the the he mentions resentment and fear, and then a judging spirit, um, and and there's one um, really really good tool that he mentions uh, is praying for the person I resent. And if you haven't already, I think you probably I think you guys have probably already seen it, but if you haven't, page 552 in the big book gives an excellent example of this. Maybe we ought to just take a look at that. Do you want to? Where, where should we start? Because this is this is uh, this is something that first appeared in the third edition of the AA big book, and it's just a very very powerful. Um, and just as a background, it's in the story called Freedom from Bondage. There's a woman who's been sober for a while, and she's worked a program and found uh, serenity of purpose in AA, opportunity to be of service to God and the people about her. And, uh, and then one morning, though, she realizes that um, she's got a resentment that's going to kill her if she doesn't get rid of it. So... What page do you have? I've had many spiritual experiences. Do you have that? I've got a third edition. You've got a fourth, I bet. Uh, 551. Okay, so on 551 it says, I've had many spiritual experiences. Start reading there. I've had many spiritual experiences since I've been in the program. Many that I didn't recognize right away, for I'm slow to learn, and they take many guises. <laughs> but one was so outstanding that I like to pass it on whenever I can in the hope that it will help someone else as it has helped. As it has me. As I said earlier, self-pity and resentment were my constant companions, and my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I seemed to have a resentment against everybody I had ever known. 
All but one responded to the treatment, suggested in the steps immediately, but this one posed a problem. This resentment was against my mother, and it was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child, and it had become as much a, a part of me as my breathing. It had provided me with excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacy, and, of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I had been willing to part with it, now I knew I was reluctant to let it go. One morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for my reprieve was running out, and if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. I looked through them. A banner across one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and to want it for them and you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding, and love. It worked for me then and it has worked for me many times since and it will work for me every time I'm willing to work it. That's good. That's good. Um, okay, yeah, this is a, a great tool. Um, now, uh, it's certainly good to use for, you know, resentment when it crops up, for me to, to pray for the person I'm resenting. But it's also a, a very good tool for working uh, the resentment list in the steps. And the way that I was taught, um, we use this prayer or this 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 uh, passage uh, quite a bit um, to help be free of resentments in, in working the fourth step. Um, the the uh, um, the the uh, <clears throat> really a really um, powerful story comes to mind. One of the men that that worked the steps this way, you know, with my former sponsor. Um, had a resentment against someone who had killed his son. So there was a man who had killed his son. He wanted to kill this person. He wanted them dead. He had to pray this prayer every day, many times a day, for like five years. So it says, you know, if you do it for two weeks, you know, maybe some take longer than two weeks. (laughs) This one took five years. He did not mean the prayer. He hated this man. He said, I'm only doing this because this, you know, he would say, it's part of the prayer. Every day he would say, God, you know I don't mean this. I'm only doing this because this jerk you got sponsoring me told me to. Here's the freaking prayer. And then he would say, and that's how he would say it, like every day, you know, many, many times a day, every time something came up that reminded him of this guy and of, of, of his son, you know, losing his son. Well, five years later, something remarkable happened. 
and it's actually a very powerful story. You can hear it on a CD. Uh, I think, I don't know if it's uh, on XA-speakers, but I certainly have a copy of it. It, it. A guy named Ron F. is the guy. It's a very, very powerful story. But suffice to say that in a very, very uh, dramatic moment, he, fe- he had what it felt like a, 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 a stake uh, pu- pulled out of his heart. And he was free of the resentments. And, you know, that's the most powerful story I've heard. Um, I've certainly had powerful experiences praying this prayer in my fourth step, and, I, and others that I know have had really, really powerful experiences. So um, uh, I've got I've got to say that for it. And then the last thing is that this story in the book illustrates something, what, what my old sponsor called uh, a predictable pattern. He calls this the predictable pattern. What happens is this woman recognizes that she has a problem. She prays to God for a solution, and then she gets busy trying to be of service. Because that's what she's doing. She's taking magazines to a meeting she was interested in. There's a meeting in the hospital that she's trying to be of service to. And so she recognized her problem. She prayed for a solution, and she got busy trying to be, be who God wants her to be. And the answer fell out of the sky. So those are the four steps. One, recognize I have a problem. Two, pray for a solution. Three, get busy doing what I'm supposed to do and let God do his part. And then four, the answer fell out of the sky. That's a predictable pattern. And I think that's a very good a good thing to take from this. You know, um, so... Not, it's not about the resentment. It's not about the bullet point of working on our other defects. But it's a very important principle that that really goes throughout uh, the program. You know, the, the, all the different steps. So, anyway, that's what I've got on eight and nine for for now. We've got a few more minutes left before time to stop. Do you guys have any anything to add on? What were those four again? Recognize the problem. Recognize the problem. Pray for a solution. Uh, get busy being of okay. service. You know, doing what I'm supposed to do. And then four is God. God does His part. It's very easy when I'm having a problem for me to remember like the first two. You know, I, oh, I've got a problem. And I pray for a solution, or maybe I call my sponsor. I get some suggestions. Uh, you know, I, I, I consult the literature. I talk to some more people. That part about turning my thoughts to someone that I can help. That one is the most easy for me to forget when I'm, especially, but, but it's most important. Like, for instance, the most important time for me to do that part would be if I've just found out that I'm going to die of cancer in three months. That's the time for me to call a sponsee or to call someone who's having a real bad day because his wife fussed at him. And try to be of service to them. You know, the time the time when I would most think, oh, this is too big a deal. This needs to be about me. There is nothing more powerful than like going to a meeting saying, I'm going to pick up a new sponsee at this meeting today. You know, when something like that is happening. And that's the, the hardest time to remember it. But that's the great thing about this program. That is amazing. When When I do that, when I do those three things, Amazing things happen. So...
you know, God does the fourth one, and, and amazing things happen. So that's really what the program is. That's, that's 12 steps compressed into three. <laughs> God does the last part. Anything else? Experiences with literature or working on the defects? Okay. Well, thank you very much. Let's uh, circle up and close with the prayer. Lord's Prayer. Our Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.